You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Abe Shapiro. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, January 25th, 2023. Later in the program, we have Disabilitan, a segment highlighting disability news across the country and around the world on the WFHB Local News, hosted by Abe Shapiro. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Fake Problems, Fake Reviews on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment here on WFHB. More following today's Disabilitan, but first, your local headlines. At the January 17th meeting of the Bloomington Board of Public Works, the board heard a resolution which would update the community special events application. City Legal Larry Allen walked through the resolution before the board. This is just to update the special event application to incorporate uh, reference to the policy and procedure for private art in the public right-of-way that you all had approved on December 20th of last year. Uh, We've made some changes to the application, and I think there were were some questions in the work session that I also want to address just really briefly. So just so everyone is aware, the changes, material changes to the application occur in sections three and six. Uh, Again, so the type of uh, potential... uh, Special event includes now just a reference to art in the right-of-way just to trigger staff so that they know who to route it to and how to apply the policy. Uh, In Section 6, it mirrors uh, some aspects of the policy to make sure that staff is checking those parts of the policy, and then also to make sure that the policy itself is attached to the application, which we'll make sure when it's uploaded online that the art policy is attached. Uh, The the one question that was uh, brought up in the work session that I'd like to address briefly was about about the time limit uh, for how long the art stays. And and just upon reflection of the board's perspective, I think that that's right. In the description of the event itself, where it's it's, it's listing the the time frame for that event to last, I think a fair interpretation of that would be to include the time that the art would last because the private party would be expected to maintain that. Uh, We'd be happy always to revisit this if in practice uh, that presents a problem and clarify it, but that's how we think it, I think it would work work in that. So I, I thank you for your, your thoughts about that. I'm sorry that I, I kind of shot off the hip there. And uh, so I appreciate the perspective. I'm happy to take any questions that the board has. The board approved the resolution unanimously. Next, civil engineer for the city, Alex Gray, presented a request from JDH Contracting for temporary lane and sidewalk closures on North Monroe Street and West Cottage Grove Avenue from January 18th through February 3rd. And I'm here because JDH uh, Contracting is uh, working on the Bloomington Digital Underground project and they're requesting uh, lane and sidewalk closures to finish out the project. Um, Their work is going to be from Crestmont Park, Mills Pool, Tri-North Middle School, Teachers Warehouse, and Butler Park and that surrounding area. And they're going to put three sections of conduit in each bore that they do and one of them will have active fiber and the other two are for future developments. 
the board approved the sidewalk closure with a unanimous vote. Then, during his staff report, Public Works Director Adam Wason announced the retirement of Animal Control Officer Vicki Minder. Uh, just a brief staff report this evening, and um, it's one that I'm very glad to give, but also a little bit sad to give. Um, today marks the end of uh, uh, Animal Control Officer Vicki M- uh, Minder's tenure with the city. So Vicki is um, retiring after 22 years of service at the Animal Care and Control Facility. Um, and just uh, want to say a special thank you to Officer Minder for all of her years of dedicated service. Uh, and even on a personal note, um, as someone who's now been with Public Works for seven years, um, Vicki was one of the first people I met as one of our staff members. And uh, I just always appreciated Vicki's kindness, her directness, her willingness to help, her honesty in all situations. And uh, as I said earlier to some staff, uh, she's just one of the good ones. So we're going to miss Vicki. We're going to miss her presence. The animals of Bloomington um, are going to miss her, I'm sure, even though they won't know it. Uh, but any, everything I know about Vicki and her work was that whenever she entered into a situation, she was going to be uh, looking for the best outcome for everyone involved, including those uh, animals that we would uh, that she would encounter in the field. Uh, when talking to her today, I know she won't mind not getting those middle-of-the-night phone calls to go deal with a bat in someone's house or uh, all of the other interesting sometimes crazy things that the animal control officers uh, go out and deal with each and every night. Um, so uh, thank you to Vicki. Thank you for your years of service. Uh, we will miss you around the animal shelter, but know you'll be in town and we'll be able to call you when we need you. So uh, just thank you, Vicki, and uh, appreciate uh, the person that you are. Board member Kyla Cox Deckard reiterated Wason's acknowledgement of Minder's work, offering a personal testimony. I just have to also give a shout out to Officer Minder. Uh, My uh, cat and I uh, both have been the beneficiary of her her services. Uh, She helped um, give some good advice when um, I had a small kitten stuck in my vehicle. So uh, really appreciate um, not only that support uh, personally, but um, I never cease to be amazed by the things that uh, our uh, staff over there are able to do and the hard work of um, all of the public works staff, but uh, especially grateful to Vicki for that service. So appreciate that. The Bloomington Board of Public Works will meet again for their regular session on Tuesday, January 31st. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is Disabilitin, where we cover the latest issues across the country and around the world impacting individuals with disabilities. This week, we continue our discussion of the Supreme Court case heard last Wednesday, Perez versus Sturgis School District. The case concerns two laws, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, which requires children with disabilities be provided a free, appropriate public education, or FAPE, and the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA which prohibits discrimination against individuals with disabilities in general. Miguel Luna Perez of Sturgis, Michigan, was denied access to a professional sign language interpreter and instead provided an ineffective one over the course of 12 years. In that time, his parents were falsely told that their son was on his way to graduation, only to receive a certificate of completion upon completing his senior year of high school. After receiving the news, the Perez family filed a lawsuit against the Michigan Department of Education and the Sturgis School Board as well, on the grounds that both violated the IDEA and ADA Acts. However, the Sturgis Public School District offered a settlement to pay for Perez to attend the Michigan School for the Deaf 
and compensate the family's legal fees as well, which would technically satisfy Perez's lawsuit under the IDEA Act, should the family have accepted, which they did. Then they filed a lawsuit under monetary damages under the ADA, which, unlike the IDEA Act, entitles them to do so. The question now before the court is whether by accepting the district settlement, the Perez family also forfeited their right to further litigation for monetary damages under the ADA. Prior to the Supreme Court ruling last week, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled Perez had forfeited his right to sue under the ADA by settling instead of going through the lengthy process of appeals for both claims known in legalese as exhaustion and is mandated by the IDEA Act a claim echoed by Sturgis District lawyer Shea Deboretsky in last week's hearing. On the other side, Perez's lawyer Ramon Martinez argued that although Perez had settled his claims under the IDEA Act, he could still pursue his claims for monetary damages separately under the ADA. Today we go through some of the most notable moments of the hearing involving exchanges between the Supreme Court justices and both Ramon Martinez of the Perez camp and Shea Deboretsky of the Sturgis camp. This is a new segment of Disabilitons coverage we like to call the Jewels of Justice. Jewel number one is one that we discussed last week that occurred at the beginning of the hearing with Justice Thomas and Perez's attorney, Ramon Martinez. Well, I, I guess the difference, the, the difficulty I'm having is I can't see where ADA fits in with IDEA. Right. That seems to be an entirely different remedy. And whether we, when we have PLRA cases, et cetera, it's usually about the same thing. A hundred percent, Your Honor. I think that's exactly the right way to think about the statute. And I think what Congress was trying to do here was essentially say, we want you to have rights under both statutes. We want you to be able to go into court if necessary and vindicate your separate rights to separate types of relief under both statutes. But in circumstances, in certain circumstances, we want you to go through the IDEA administrative procedures first. And the text of the statute says, that if your ADA claim is only seeking things that you can't get under the IDEA, in the words of Fry, if the consequence of your ADA claim, if you brought it in the IDEA procedure, would be that the IDEA hearing officer would have to send you away empty-handed because that statute just does not provide you that type of relief, that type of relief is not available, then you do not have to exhaust. I guess that's why I'm having trouble considering it exhaustion. Right. Because it seems to be, uh, normally you would think of exhaustion as being, uh, similar. The relief would be similar to the, uh, exhausted claims. Exactly. Uh, this seems to be an entirely different statute. So I don't understand even the use of the term exhaustion here. I, I think it's, it's a, it's a unique sort of a one of a kind statute. And I think that in this kind of circumstance when you have a unique statute, two things. One, it's especially important to focus on the exact text of the statute. And the text of the statute, the overwhelmingly most reasonable reading of the statute, the only reasonable reading of the statute in our view, is that if you are seeking money damages, and everyone agrees money damages are not available under the IDEA, then you just do not have to exhaust. The exhaustion requirement doesn't apply. Even if you disagreed with us on that, though, I think that in a, in a, in a situation like this, where the re- exhaustion requirement is saying you need to exhaust the IDEA administrative procedures on your IDEA claim, in a circumstance where those procedures specifically say you need to engage in a settlement process, presumably in good faith, and if the school comes to you in the settlement process and says, you're right, we were wrong, we're going to give you everything you're asking for, we're going to give you everything you're entitled to under the IDEA, of course the statute wants you to say yes. And that's exactly what happened here. Miguel got an offer of full relief 
and he accepted it. That's, that is a success story under the IDEA. It's not a success story in total, in, 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 it doesn't make Miguel completely whole because he suffered other damages as well, but under the IDEA, he got everything he was entitled to, and he said he exhausted. The the two are not entirely unrelated. I mean, uh, in each, in both cases, your your claims are going to be based on the denial of an FAPE or a FAP, uh, 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 and it's certainly reasonable uh, to assume that the settlement process under the IDEA could well be significant in resolving uh, the other claims. Um, it seems to me that what's unusual in this case is that the school board said, well, don't worry about those. We're going to settle this. I mean, if this were any other type of litigation, the lawyers would want to say, we've got a lot on the table, and let's figure out how to resolve it. Uh, and it's not clear to me why uh, you would necessarily or artificially separate those two. And, of course, your, your friend on the other side uh, has a construction answer to uh, uh, your notion of how the exhaustion works, the relief, the relief you're seeking is, is based uh, uh, on uh, a FAPE. That's what's going to be pertinent in all those cases. Why isn't that? So, so two argument? points to that, Your Honor. First of all, I think it's certainly true that if you bring the IDEA claim, you could have a settlement discussion that encompasses not just the IDEA claims, but also other claims that you might have that haven't yet been asserted in that process. And I think the normal thing that we would expect is that when, bar- when parties are bargaining, and if, this, if the child is going to give up those other claims, they're going to get something uh, in return. In this case, that settlement discussion happened. In the, you know, the, the, there was a settlement discussion, and Miguel would have turned down a request to give up ADA rights without any compensation for those ADA rights. And the effect of Sturgis's rule is that if he accepts the settlement on the IDEA claim, it, like, automatically gets rid of, it essentially gives the school a full release, a get-out-of-jail-free card on the ADA liability. And that's just not right. And I think the second thing I was going to say, Your Honor, is that this isn't an artificial limit. This is a limit that comes out of the text of the statute. And Congress was very clear. It chose words very precisely. And it said that you, it made clear you don't have to exhaust if the relief you're seeking in the non-IDEA claim is not available under the IDEA. And I think in, in these circumstances, it makes sense to, to read that language the way you would apply, you would look at the same words elsewhere in the IDEA. The, the same word relief appears elsewhere, and it means what we say it means. That's the way the, the word relief is used in other legal contexts. That's consistent and I think reinforced by the reasoning of Fry, which says that if you have to go to the hearing officer and the hearing officer would necessarily turn you away empty-handed, we don't want exhaustion in that circumstance. This court's decision in Carr versus Saul announces the very common sense principle. Uh, this is two terms ago, saying that it, it makes little sense to require litigants to present claims to adjudicators who are powerless to grant the relief requested. In the clip we just heard, it appeared as though Justice John Roberts and Justice Clarence Thomas were expressing mutual confusion regarding why settlement claims were different under the ADA and Idea Acts when they could in fact be similar. But now we turn to our second gem, in which Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson appears to join Justice Roberts and Thomas on the question of the strange idea that the idea and ADA damages can go to court at the same time. And even, even if it is odd, though, Mr. Martinez, isn't that exactly what the statute seems to contemplate? I mean, I guess I'm wondering whether or not we're even in a position to question the notion of dual uh, proceedings, given that, at least as I read the statute, Congress is contemplating that you'll have a situation in which there's a civil action that's seeking relief that is not available under the IDEA. So I, I take this to mean that Congress thought that dual 
actions, at least in some circumstances, were possible, and that was fine. I think that's exactly uh, right under the statute, and I think that the nice thing about the statute is that it doesn't take away the, the inherent discretion of district courts to manage their dockets in this way. And if you thought, or five of you thought, that it was important to give some guidance to lower courts and sort of remind them that if they wanted to, to stay parallel proceedings, if you're concerned about that, you could do that. On the other hand, uh, Justice Jackson, I think you are right that the statute does not seem to say that it has to be a stay. I mean, in, in, in my view, and I, maybe you can just react to that, is, isn't what really is going on here that Congress was concerned about people doing an end run around the IDEA in a certain way? That is, you have, you know, a set of facts concerning the denial of a fate that could give rise to claims under, let's say, both of these statutes, the IDEA and the ADA. And, um, you know, the, the plaintiff is the master of their complaint and can decide which statute uh, to bring it under. And so in a situation in which the relief that is being asked for is only the kind of relief that is available under the IDEA, maybe Congress didn't want the person to call that an ADA statute and thereby get around the exhaustion. But if you're asking for something else, if your claim is something else, then Congress didn't have a problem with both of those proceeding in tandem. I I think that's, that's an absolutely fair way of looking at the statute, and there's certainly no circumvention concern when the only thing you need is something that you can't get under the IDEA. We now turn to the man in the defendant corner, in this case, Shea Dvoretsky, representing Sturgis. Our first moment in this exchange with the justices occurred late in the proceedings before Justice Neil Gorsuch, who questioned Dvoretsky on the extent to which Martinez had to fully exhaust his claims. And on that... On that, I, I just want to press you on that assertion, because your friend on the other side says, no, uh, if we were to adopt your rule... Uh, the parties couldn't contract to allow an ADA claim to be brought later, that a settlement would itself extinguish uh, the potential for an ADA claim. You have to exa- Your theory of exhaustion requires proceeding through the administrative process altogether. You want to respond to that? Yes. I, I don't think that's right, Justice Gorsuch. I think that the exhaustion requirement under the IDEA in light of this court's clear statement rule, uh, although it's not a fourth question presented here, I don't think the court would likely find that the exhaustion requirement is a jurisdictional one. And so it is something that either way, whether you adopt our rule well, absent or absent waiver by the other side, it would operate in the way uh, Mr. Martinez suggests, wouldn't it? A- absent a waiver, it would, and that, I think, takes us to the default rule point. And in our final highlight, we find a diamond in the rough that came from our most valuable justice in this case, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Can I ask you the same, maybe the same question as a hypothetical, just so that I understand, because I think I'm a little confused. So suppose we have a student who has both a viable IDEA claim and a viable ADA claim arising out of the same facts, which is the school is not giving her what she needs to get an appropriate education. But for whatever reason, she only wants to bring the claim for money damages. Maybe she's going into her senior year. She's given up on education. She wants to go to work. So she doesn't want any of the, you know, adjust my education, give me the actual accommodations. She just wants to drop out and go to work and get compensatory damages for the harm that's been caused, she says, by the school's neglect under the ADA. Does she have to exhaust using the procedures in this statute or not? 
Um, I think she does, but in order to answer that question, I also have to, to just challenge one premise of it, which is I think that in generally speaking, even after you have graduated, you can still get redress for the denial of a FAPE through the IDEA. But not compensatory damages. She doesn't want any of the injunctive relief related to the circumstances of education. So whatever the relief is that she could have gotten from the hearing officer about the state or status of her educational circumstances, she disclaims. All she wants is to be compensated for what she says occurred to her during the period of her education. And so she says, I don't want to bring an IDEA claim. I have an ADA claim. Does she have to sit in front of a hearing officer and talk about ways in which her education could be changed, et cetera? Uh, yes, and I think what she could get under the IDA in that situation is compensatory education. She can have additional, even after she's graduated, additional. But she forward- doesn't want that. She doesn't want that. She does. She's saying, "I'm 18. I don't have to go to school anymore. I don't want to go to school anymore. I'm dropping out. I just want compensatory damages under the ADA." What I'm trying to understand is why do we have a statute, in your view, that would make her exhaust? under the IDA, IDEA as if she was asking for that other form of relief? Because whatever her preferences as to damages, Congress's priority in enacting the ADA and in it's reflected in 1415L <clears throat> was first and foremost to make sure that people get a FAPE. And so the remedy that she would get for the denial of a FAPE may not be immediately her first choice. And you don't she see might- yourself as reading out the first part of the statute that says nothing about this limits the person's remedies or rights under the non-IDEA uh, uh, statute. I-, I don't because the second part of 1415L starts out by saying except that before the filing of a civil action. Up next, we have fake problems, fake reviews on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Do you shop for products on the internet? I do. When I buy a tool or an appliance or in any situation where I know what I want but I don't know what kind or which one, I'll go online and search for best dishwasher or best car polish or whatever it is. That brings up pages from people and organizations that test things. This kind of reviews are generally reliable, especially when the website belongs to an established company like Consumer Reports, Forbes, or Good Housekeeping. I'll look at several of these lists and choose a short list of makes and models to check out. Then I will go shopping on sites like Amazon, eBay, and Etsy, and on websites of stores that have local outlets like Menards or Best Buy or Target. I would much rather purchase something or order it from a local store whenever possible. 
On all these websites, each product listing usually has a list of customer reviews and a breakdown of the reviews by the number of stars given or some method of ranking them from negative to positive. You've been there. You've seen this, right? Well, watch out. Customer reviews can be faked, and it's happening much more often than most people realize. Case in point, a solid-state computer drive. One of the newer product review websites is ReviewGeek.com. ReviewGeek ordered a 16-terabyte SSD drive, and that's a very high-capacity drive, from Amazon at the astonishingly low price of $70. It had dozens of five-star reviews on the Amazon website. When it arrived, it turned out to be a 64-megabyte SD card. Roughly speaking, a terabyte is a thousand gigabytes and a gigabyte is a thousand megabytes, so this little ripoff had only a tiny, tiny fraction of the claimed capacity and only worked at one-twentieth of the claimed speed. Customer reviews on websites are all too easy to fake. Sellers create their own reviews, praising their products, and sometimes even forward good reviews, real or fake, from entirely different products. Well, well, how do you tell? I mean, how do you know for sure? How do you ever really know? Good question. Well, fake reviews are almost always five-star good ones, so pay attention to the four-star and three-star reviews. Read the reviews, especially the five-star ones. Don't just look at the stats and go well down the list. If you find a review that calls a vacuum cleaner cuddly or says it tastes good, you know there are bushels of fakes in that stack. Amazon and other websites have strict policies against fake reviews, but phony testimonials sneak past their safeguards all the time. And it's not just a few. There can be hundreds of fakes, making the product look much better than it really is. One other thing that's good to keep in mind, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noella Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Abe Shapiro. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. 
Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB News, I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thank you for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe now to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Hereabouts, Asian American Midwest Radio, coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 